Hey, podcast listeners, Matt here. If this podcast has brought you any value at all, we would love it if you would review it, recommend it to friends, let us know what you think, send us an email, info at cemeng.ca. We'd love to make the podcast better. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Energy Radio. Before I introduce our guest, I'd like to welcome my co-host, Lisa Barber. Lisa, welcome to Energy Radio. Good morning, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. And how are you? I'm good. Sun is shining. Uh, Friday, can't complain. The the lights are on. uh, So our generation fleet in Ontario must be humming along uh, as it always does. And to that end, uh, we are so pleased to be joined today by Robin Manley, the VP of Nuclear Development at Ontario Power Generation, or uh, as we will probably refer to it for the balance of our conversation, OPG, because us engineers love three-letter acronyms. Uh, Robin, welcome to Energy Radio. Thanks very much, uh, Matt and, and Lisa. It's, it's great to be here today. I really look forward to chat with you. Awesome. Great. Well, let's uh, let's dive in. We're going to talk uh, some, some exciting things about where OPG is uh, going in the future. But before we do that, to lay the groundwork, Robin, uh, why don't you give our listeners just a, a kind of a review of of your career? I think you've been at OPG for most of it. So introduce us to yourself and, and your, your role and, and, and uh, what you're busy with at OPG these days. Okay. Uh, yeah, thanks very much. So my title is the Vice President of New Nuclear Development at OPG, and I sometimes tell folks that I have the best job in the company. And that's because my role is to help with growing new nuclear energy opportunities in OPG, in Ontario, and even across the country, yeah. uh, which is a, a really exciting opportunity. You know, we haven't built new nuclear plants in, in Canada for, for quite some time, and we, we really see it as one of the key steps that OPG and Canada can make towards fighting climate change. So, so just a little bit about me. I... I graduated from Queen's University in 1986 with a degree in, uh, in physics, specifically astrophysics. I went on and did a master's degree in black holes, actually. And, uh, and then wow. I went work, worked in England for a year uh, in a consulting engineering company that did a bunch of work in the nuclear sector. Uh, came back to Canada, uh, joined Ontario Hydro, as it was called then, uh, the predecessor of OPG. And I worked in our uh, radiation protection and health physics group there, uh, successively a variety of uh, jobs and manager positions uh, in that area. Then I went into our licensing group uh, to get licenses for our, our continuing licenses for our sites at Redbring and Darlington under the CNSC requirements. And from there, uh, moved into new nuclear and small modular reactors in April of 2019. Very cool. Thank wow. you. And I know I know um, Lisa has some legitimate questions here, but I'm dying to ask. <laughs> given given your studies of black holes, are you a a Trekkie or are you a Star Wars guy? Um, I'm both, actually. Are you? Okay. <laughs> well, that's probably the right answer given your uh, education background. Okay, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> no, that's great. And uh, yeah, thanks for for the background there, Robin. Um, so we've actually had Carla Carmichael on our podcast in the past. Uh, but we've uh, since had a number of new listeners join. So, um, and she she did kind of go into a or give a good background on uh, how nuclear power is generated. But if if you could give us kind of a bit of a background or our listeners a background on that, that would be great. Sure. 
So nuclear power is generated basically like this. You, you mine, mill, and manufacture uranium fuel. Uh, you take that fuel and you put it into a nuclear reactor, which is basically a, a really big kettle. <laughs> okay. And you use the, the natural reactivity that uranium has and you, that basically neutrons uh, come off of uh, fissionable material or fissile material like uranium. And basically those atoms split. And you do that in a controlled way by moderating how much that happens. And when those neutrons uh, come off and gamma rays come off of the uranium as the, as the atoms split, uh, those, those neutrons and gammas heat up the coolant material that you have. And most uh, power reactors around the world use water of one kind or another. And uh, you basically heat up that water uh, then the hot water either directly is boiled to steam to drive a turbine or the hot water goes through pipes and the pipes on the other side of them have a secondary material, again, typically water, which is turned into steam. And so either way, the steam goes off, drives a turbine, the turbine has a shaft, the shaft goes in a generator and the generator causes electricity to come out the back end. And the second half of this process Everything from the steam, the turbines, the generator is very common, whether it's a natural gas plant, an oil-fired uh, plant, diesel, coal. Those are all the same. The difference with nuclear is what the fuel is, that there's this fission process that occurs, and there's no carbon dioxide greenhouse gas generated in that process. Whereas if you've got natural gas or you've got coal, oil that the the fuel is consumed through combustion and you end up with carbon dioxide greenhouse gases being emitted that's fundamentally how it works awesome and that's a really great back yeah right breakdown and robin just a follow-up question for um those listeners maybe from the u.s as canadians we have a bit of a a claim to fame around uh, the can-do reactor i think right yes what, what makes that you know, following on your great description of, of how it works, what are the, you know, some of the, without giving uh, international secrets out, what are the, what are some of the nuances of the can-do reactor that make it so unique uh, in this space? Yeah, so the can-do reactor was, was developed partly because the Canadians, uh, Canada has an abundance of uranium. Okay. And so if you have an abundance of uranium, you, you don't need to, um, do a, a process of enriching it to, to have uh, more densely energetic uranium. You can have the, the uranium in its natural state. Also, Canada back way, way back, you know, never developed, um, you know, nuclear powered submarines and, and those kinds of military applications. And so we didn't need the reactor to be really, really small and compact. A can-do reactor, because it uses natural uranium, has, has a reactor core that's physically a bit bigger than some of the other designs like the Americans, most of whose power reactors sort of derive from their, their submarine program where they were more compact. So that's one of the fundamental differences. What's your fuel? Natural uranium versus enriched uranium. And the other is that if you're using natural uranium, I used the word moderator earlier or moderate the neutrons to control the reactivity, 
you end up needing to use what's called heavy water, which is which is water, but it's been um, processed in such a way that you've collected more of the um, uh, higher uh, uh, isotope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting a little technical here. Water is made up of hydrogen and, and oxygen, but hydrogen has different isotopes, and one of them is called deuterium. And so if you collect more of that deuterium water, you end up with heavy water, and that's the thing that's technically different from U.S. reactors. Very cool. Don't don't shy away from the technical stuff, by the way, Robin. Our listeners love it, so we hear. So uh, it's, it's all good. <laughs> um, when we think about nuclear, we often think about radiation. And I know that at some point in your career, uh, you were a radiation protection manager. What did that specific role look like, and why was that role so important to OPG? And how just as if you could discuss the radiation piece for us a little bit as well. Right. Well, hey, everyone knows it. Nuclear reactors produce radiation. It's a fact. And and uh, and radiation uh, can be harmful. And it, it's like many other things that if you get too much of it, it's harmful. Uh, so, you know, frankly, too much oxygen in air you breathe is harmful, right? So so we, we want to understand that there's a natural environment around us that has radiation in it. It's everywhere in the world. You cannot avoid it. Um, depending on high, how, high, how, uh, how high an elevation you live at, uh, what's the kind of rock formation around the, y- your vicinity? Is it more granite or is it limestone or is it sandstone? These things cause differences in the natural radiation around you. So if you're going to work at a nuclear power plant, there is additional radiation compared to the natural background. And what we have to do as the radiation protection staff and managers is we have to do a variety of things. We have to control control that. We have to educate our staff on how to work safely with it. We have to measure and monitor how much people get. We have to have tools uh, and, and, and ways of ensuring that we shield people from those radiation effects. And so as long as um, you can show that there are levels of radiation where the risk is very small, and then you have control measures that keep the actual radiation that people get much lower than the safe level, then you can assure your staff that they are protected. And then you you do a variety of kinds of things like epidemiological studies to demonstrate that there is no measurable effect on any workers exposed at those low levels. Mm. So your radiation protection staff essentially have a detailed program in place that trains, educates, controls, measures, monitors, all of these different things. And then um, our workers understand, hey, they are working in a safe place. In fact, a safer industry than very many others. And, uh, and, and, and essentially, everybody is now confident that this is a, a good place to work. Very cool. So let's let's step kind of back out of the technical for a minute and and talk about you know OPG came out in November with your climate change plan and this bold proclamation uh, of being net zero by 2040. And I want to give you a chance to talk about that. Um, but I mean, I was at at one of my co-op terms was at at Nanacoke at the coal plant uh, with OPG and. And by then already the wall, the writing was on the wall that you know, that that plant was 
it, it was going to reach end, end of life and they were, you know, they were testing biomass already elsewhere. And so, you know, and I think by 2014, we were done burning coal in this province. So, I mean, net zero by 2040 isn't, I guess one of my ch- questions is, are we, are we there already as OPG or like talk us through what does that mean? And then I think there's kind of a cascading of helping other industries get get there by 2050. So talk to us through the OPG climate change plan, Robin. Right. Well, people have undoubtedly heard about this thing called offsets, right? Um, Bill Gates talks about this, like in his you know 60 minute interview in various other places. He talks about how he would you know buy carbon offsets to mitigate the fact that he flies around in jets. So, I mean, that's that's true for all human activity. Every single thing we do generates carbon emissions. Uh, and and even if it's even if it's a wind turbine. And what I mean by that is you've got to mine the metal, you've got to manufacture things, you've got to install them, you, you know, you've got to drive out there and monitor it. I mean, there's no way around the fact that there is some carbon emission from any human activity. The uh, uh, Bitcoin you know, is a huge generator of carbon emissions, right? Even though it's digital, like, so, all right. So, so what you do first off is you go out and you figure out what is your impact. So where are you causing impacts? Whether it's from heating your buildings, lighting your buildings, um, you know, paying for your electricity, for your, for your servers and your computers, whether it's the construction of your facilities, um, whether it's the, the the mining and milling of the fuel that you use of whatever kind that is, and you, you basically met, add all those up, and, and you know you get some sort of expert organization who does this kind of thing to kind of give you what's my carbon footprint as a business, and and then you basically go where can I change that? Where where are the areas that I can practically in a reasonable time frame at a reasonable cost reduce those things? And so you identify credible ones where, you know what, I can convert my fleet of vehicles to electric vehicles. Okay, so are they all gas now? They'll all be electric in the future. Okay, what's the delta? What what change have I made by doing that? And you, you do that across the board and, and you kind of say, okay, I've I've actually reduced it by a certain amount, but I haven't made it zero. So now what do I do? Are there some offsets that I can pay for where I, I, I finance um, activities that are going to take carbon out of the atmosphere by be it planting trees, wetlands, grasslands, all kind of natural plant organisms uh, through their organic exchange of carbon with the atmosphere, they draw carbon out of the atmosphere and pull them into themselves. And so if you, uh, and, and this is why, you know, deforestation uh, of tropical forests, for example, is one of the reasons it's so harmful to the environment is because you're, you're not just burning all those things and sort of sticking it in the air, but you're also taking away that bank of carbon reducer, right? In addition to the effect on biodiversity. So, so uh, OPG and other like-minded companies can do things that have multiple benefits. You, you, you replenish that natural environment, it helps you on biodiversity, and it also serves as a carbon sink to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and return part of the world to a more natural environment. So it's 
It's got multiple benefits, and those kind of offsets that you can do can then counteract the part of the carbon emissions that your company makes that you aren't able at this time to make go away entirely. Mm-hmm. And by measuring all that up, you can say in a, in a credible way, you can say, my company is now net zero due to these, these mm-hmm. combination of factors. Do you have a sense of here we are in 2021, like um, is maybe you've done some of the internal accounting at OPG. Is this an aggressive target? Like, is there a lot of because it strikes me that you you're you're drawing a very large, you know, control volume or envelope around the value chain. I think sometimes in this space we draw too narrow of a focus and, and we kind of turn a blind eye to how is that pulled out of the ground or what's going to happen when we you know dispose of you know whatever the technology is it strikes me that you're you are drawing a very large you know box in terms of you know concrete you know that's a high co2 emitter you know mining all that stuff um so all of that stacked together is you know is this a real aggressive uh, target for a big organization like opg well i think it's aggressive but credible is how i would describe it mm. i mean you could go around and say, well, you should be more aggressive and you should do it by 2030 or 2022 or something. But you also have to be realistic, too, as to um, that that's not a trivial thing to do. And uh, and so we're we're kind of trying to be more aggressive than others, but but not uh, unrealistic about what's practical. Hmm. Interesting. So, so- so to, so to step back and say, you know, net zero by 2030, uh, it might look good. It might catch some headlines. But, you know, those who know, know that, no, that's 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 un- unobtainium, perhaps. Well, to use. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I love that term. But I, I don't know that it's unobtainable as much as that when the team looked at it, they went. 2030 is not one that we want to aim at. Yeah, I mean, if and we I, get there, if we get there, that's great, right? But uh, but 2040, we thought was a better target. As part of your uh, climate change plan, uh, Robin at OPG, it, it discusses exploring opportunities in non-hydro renewables and energy storage. What does that mean from a technology perspective to OPG? Yeah, so you know, I, I will I will point to our uh, our climate change plan for anybody who wants to look it up. You can look it up on opg.com and it, it spells all this out probably better than I can do. And there's some great graphics as well. And I really want to call out our team for the beautiful package they put together there. Um, but in, in essence, you know, people talk about solar and wind most commonly as non-hydro renewables. I mean, mm-hmm. th- there are other things as well, but but those are the sort of two big ones that get talked about a lot. And and OPG doesn't have a huge footprint in those areas ourselves, but the province of Ontario does, right? So we are, you know, OPG is a piece of the big picture in the province. And and each province in Canada has its own a sort of natural uh, opportunities that exist, right? Because it's such a big country with so many different kind of resources there is not a one-size-fits-all answer. And, and really, that's part of the message that the, um, that the world needs to get its head around, is to just 
do a really narrow focus on one or two things and say that it is going to solve the climate change problem, we don't agree with that. Uh, we, we think that that's uh, narrow-minded and not recognizing the realities of the world. So, so you, 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 these are my words, not, it's not in the company uh, doc, uh, <laughs> document here, but I kind of call this, we're being idealistic and pragmatic at the same time. Right. So, you know, we, we recognize that BC's solution is not the same as Alberta's solution. So, uh, and in, in, in Ontario, we've got, you know, great amount of hydro and we want to develop that further. We've got a bunch of solar. We've got a bunch of wind. We'll probably need more of both of them. We have a significant nuclear contribution to fighting climate change. And we need to keep that because it has served us so well in enabling closing of the coal plants in the past. And when we look around at other uh, major economies that have a you know real green focus, you know, people talk about Germany. But the fact is, if we look at our carbon emissions compared to Germany, we're better than 10 times better. And, and that's because they have, frankly, they've closed nuclear and they've outsourced to other countries that are burning coal. Uh, we don't want that to happen. And if you look at California that touts all the you know, solar that they've got, we have a much better uh, low, profi low carbon profile uh, economy than they do. And again, it's that great balance of the different tools that we are maintaining. So, so we'll continue to investigate and, and not just have this narrow focus on one solution. So as, as carbon capture and storage becomes more effective, we'll you know, lean into that. Uh, we're, we're working aggressively in the hydrogen uh, as a fuel source because hydrogen is not a carbon emitting fuel. You have to produce the carbon in a clean way. If you burn gas to create hydrogen, that is not helpful. You need to create the hydrogen using non-carbon emitting sources. And, uh, and, and whether that comes from solar, whether that comes from wind, whether it comes from hydro, whether it comes from nuclear, they will all produce clean hydrogen in a clean way. Let the, let the record show we're 28 minutes in and we got our first hydrogen reference. So <laughs> I, it's a little inside joke for, for Lisa and I, Robin. We, I always joke that you, you can't swing a dead cat these days without talking to somebody about hydrogen. And you know what? It, I think it is something that is still, you know, several years out. And at the same time, we need to be talking about it. We need to be, you know, focusing on it. So, um, Let's talk about, and, and I guess before I get to my next question, I love that reference to, you know, being authentic to, you know, what each province has. We Last week we had uh, somebody from uh, MHI, Manitoba Hydro uh, International, and, and so we had a great conversation about Manitoba and their, you know, they, I mean, geographically, they, they have a beautiful province for hydroelectric, as does Quebec, right? And so there's a level of authenticity there that is different in Ontario in our mix and, and different in BC and Alberta. So, uh, you know, as, as proud Canadians, I'm glad you, you called that out. We, we talked about not keying in on, on one particular project and having a, a basket. I think there's a new tool that's coming into the basket that's um, these, these small modular reactors. And, and I think OPG has made some announcements, I think, about trying some stuff. Um, I think there's a, a similarly a lot of buzz about SMR, small modular reactors. We have 
you know, an authority on nuclear. Talk to us about uh, SMRs and what maybe you you folks are doing, what the opportunity is, where the technology is at in terms of commercialization. Sure. So first off, a small modular reactor or small nuclear modular reactor, you know, there's different terms that get thrown around. It is essentially a nuclear reactor that is smaller than can-do plants or a lot of the, the big plants around the world. It's modular in two senses of the word. One is we mean modular as in you do factory construction as much as you can and ship larger uh, constructs or components to the site and then bolt them together versus a sort of a more traditional sort of stick built piece by piece on site. And it's also intended to be modular in the sense of kind of like Lego blocks that that, okay, do I need more of them at this site because my electricity demand has increased? I need to be able to bring them in and add more relatively quickly. Now, you know, when you're talking about building reactors, it's never super quick. So it's a it's a relative thing, relative to larger uh, units. So mm -hmm. so smaller in physical fit, footprint, smaller in electricity production, smaller in capital cost, uh, faster to construct because they're smaller. And also S stands for simpler. The mm -hmm. the intent is to have um, plants that hypothetically. Uh, and we, I say hypothetical and that we have to test it, we have to prove it out, we could deploy these in remote communities or at mines with a smaller complement of operating staff than the traditional large plants. Now, we haven't done that in Canada, and, uh, and it, it remains to be proven. We have to have community acceptance, Indigenous engagement and consultation, and, and lots of things have to happen before those kind of... Uh, very small modular reactors could be deployed at mine sites or remote communities. So we're we're uh, we're moving at a I call a kind of a measured pace. Um, OPG is supporting a first of a kind uh, project proposal at the Chalk River site where Canadian Nuclear Labs has has Canada's historic uh, old Atomic Energy Canada Labs there. Uh, we're partnering with a company called UltraSafe Nuclear Corporation. There's a limited partnership that's called Global First Power, and it is going through the environmental assessment and the CNSC, that's the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, regulatory licensing process at Chalk River for a very small modular reactor, five megawatts. So that's that's enough to, to power like a small town kind of thing in terms of size. Um, and it's a, it's a reactor that could also deliver high quality heat. It's a high temperature reactor that has the opportunity to, to power industrial processes, whether it's water desalination, hydrogen production, I'll say that again, um, whether it's uh, heat for, um, for example, um, supplying greenhouses and, and food production or various kinds of industrial processes. It could be used in the oil sands for steam assisted gravity drain. Uh, SAG-D, for, for decarbonizing resource production. Um, so there's multiple different applications for that kind of technology. So we're, we're leading, or, or in a joint venture, we're working with this other company to advance this sm very small version. And then at the kind of grid scale, electricity grid uh, scale reactor, 
we're we're proposing to site one at our Darlington site, uh, where we already have a an approved environmental assessment, and we have the first of three CNSC licenses that you would need. Um, you have to have a site preparation license, then you get a construction license, and then you get an operating license. So several steps along the way. So uh, we're proposing to uh, site Canada's first grid scale small modular reactor there at, at Darlington. And the idea is to demonstrate that we can do that at a cost that is competitive with other clean energy sources. Because, you know, let's let's be honest, there are there are people who would say you don't need new nuclear. You can do it all with um, uh, solar and wind and batteries. And as I said before, we don't think that this is a one size fits all toolkit and you need different options. And so what what uh, OPG proposes to do is let's let's build the first one and we're going to show how much value that adds it value in terms of clean, reliable base load power generation that can also load follow mm. and, and work well with renewables because the wind isn't always blowing and the sun's not always shining. And so you have the, the different energy sources that work well together. Uh, and then we would see this as the first of a potential fleet of uh, SMRs in other jurisdictions that are looking for clean baseload power to replace their existing coal plants and that don't want to build just a bunch of natural gas plants. But that also they recognize I can't do it all with solar and wind. So I need something else in the mix. So um, th this is where, if I go back to our climate change strategy and, and helping others get to a net zero economy by 2050, one way that we're trying to contribute to that is OPG has nuclear expertise and we have major project expertise. Mm. And we are probably best placed of any company in Canada to bring the first SMR online. And, and we would kind of use that and leverage that to help others to do the same thing where it makes sense to them. So, for example, BC and Quebec will probably never say it makes sense for them. And that's fine. But maybe Saskatchewan and Alberta see this as one of the tools in their toolkit. But they may not have the confidence to go first. They may want to follow someone else who's already done one. So we have the uh, opportunity to do that. And the... The thing about small modular reactors that is, I think, helpful compared to grid scale, really big reactors like the can-do plants, if you have a really large grid, a 3,000 3, megawatt plant like Darlington makes sense because the grid is big enough and the capital budget enables economy of scale that you can produce power at a good price. But if your grid is more Saskatchewan size, that plant's too big. Mm. So you want something that fits. Where have I got a coal plant that I want to replace with something else? Oh, 300 megawatts, 600 megawatts, that kind of thing makes sense. And and the smaller grids, you know, they don't need that much either. So, that, so what's the right size for them? Well, there's SMR technology in every size range. Mm. And there are some countries in other parts of the world that, again, they won't want 3,000 megawatts. Some will, some won't. So let's um, let's find the the right technology for the right fit. In some cases, it's going to be a lot of solar and batteries. 
In other places, it might be nuclear. When you say, Robin, that there's SMRs in every size range, like how small do they really go? So there are there are designs that are being rapidly advanced on the on the order of one megawatt all the way up to 300 and bigger. It's so practical. When I say every size, I practically mean just about every size. And and this isn't really um, shouldn't really be surprising, because if you go back through the history of nuclear, there are research reactors uh, that exist and have been operating for decades of all these little sizes, you know, less than a megawatt in universities, uh, 10 kilowatts, 100 kilowatts, you know, uh, and uh, and there's research reactors operating in all sorts of parts of the world that are used, whether it's for for uh, isotope production or testing materials that we have decades of operating experience with. So what what these new technologies that we're talking about in SMRs is let's take some of those older uh, research reactor technologies, let's refine them, add um, new manufacturing techniques that can reduce cost and add you know the most recent safety features that we've developed after decades of experience uh, and add digital technology to them again to make them more efficient and then we can bring these forward in a, a commercial scale as opposed mm-hmm. to the sort of test and research reactor scale and is it fair to say that those smaller facilities would require the same type of uh you know, kind of safety protocols or, or uh, you know, site safety, uh, you know, where the, where the, the facility is manned, basically? Um, or, or does that kind of change as you start to kind of grow in size? So the CNSC, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, the national regulator in Canada, uh, is responsible for regulating all nuclear in Canada. And they have a, a set of uh, acts, well, they have an act and they have a set of regulations and regulatory requirements that they've established that, that covers all reactors. But they don't exactly have a one size fits all because they, they recognize that it's, it's what's called risk informed. So they look at the technology and the size of it and the risk of it, and they establish the right kind of requirements to ensure the same level of protection, mm. but it can be the same level of protection being can be accomplished with different tools. So if you had a really, really small reactor, it wouldn't necessarily have the exact same security requirements as a nuclear power plant. It would have the same fundamental requirement of protecting the environment, the public and the workers, and then the particular regulatory tools that are applied depend on the exact technology. So there's um, there's the same again the same fundamental requirement of safety, but how it's done can vary a little bit. So um, we can we can foresee that a larger plant is going to need more staff, and a smaller plant can have fewer staff, but Right now, today, we, we're not really imagining no staff. Mm. Who knows what the future may bring, but that seems a bridge too far right at the moment. Yeah. Right. And what, speaking of, you know, bridges and, 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 you know, planning for the future, like what, what is the barrier now from your view, Robin? Is it, is it, you know, we're not there yet in the manufacturing processes? Is it, you know, public perception? Is it permitting? Is like, 
what's what's the kind of shoe that has to drop to you know get us to to more widespread adoption of of SMRs? Because the picture that you've painted of all the areas where it can fit in, they're pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, I I agree. It is in Canada uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago now. Uh, the federal government working with uh, about a hundred or so interested uh, stakeholders produced something called the SMR Roadmap. And again, you can Google SMR Roadmap and you can see that the, the conclusion was that there are no fundamental barriers to expanding the deployment of nuclear power in Canada. They, they made about 50 recommendations. Uh, for things that could be worked on to advance it and work has advanced in those areas and then in uh, December of 2020 the follow-up report came out which is the SMR action plan and again you can look that up on the internet and it has something like 400 odd um, actions that have been committed to by different organizations across the country to advance this opportunity so the fact that I said that there's no fundamental barriers doesn't mean there aren't challenges. So absolutely there's challenges. So, so some of the key challenges are that um, no one's built a nuclear power plant in Canada since Darlington in the 1990s. And the, you know, the regulatory regime has changed a little bit. And so we do have to make sure that we understand and appropriately go through all of the environmental assessment processes or what's now called the Impact Assessment Act and all the licensing processes for new nuclear construction. And in order to get, you know, those licenses from the CNSC, you have to, you know, first off, you have to be a credible licensee. You have to be able to demonstrate that you have the management system, the technological savvy, the, the, um, the corporate structure, the, the financial guarantees in place. There's a lot of things that you have to uh, show through a public hearing process that the public can comment on that you're credible to do this and you'll protect the public and the environment and the workers. Mm. But, so that's one of the steps. It's not a barrier, but it's a it's a challenge. And and do you believe is the thinking that that step will be applied per project or per technology or like where where does that get applied the the rule in canada is that it applies per project per site okay. so okay. in the united states that the process is a little bit different they will the, the regulatory process certifies a technology and then they get a license at the site in canada the cnc doesn't certify the technology instead you you pick your site you do your consultation your indigenous engagement and those things and you show up and you do your environmental assessment and you bring your technology uh, submission and all the rest of it and the CNSC licenses you for that site and that technology so it, it is per project so you know that 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 is and frankly it's you know it's time consuming it's very thorough and robust and that's what you have to do um, so so one of the questions of course that always gets raised in those discussions is what about nuclear waste so uh, let me just tackle that first off by saying that <laughs> we have in Canada a very long-standing practice of safely controlling, monitoring uh, all the nuclear waste that we generate and protecting the public and the environment from it. And, and we can show 
how we do that. And we do show how we do that in these public hearings where, because we have licenses for these sites that get interrogated. So what are all your control measures? What are your protective measures? Show me that you have the financial guarantee, the money in the bank set aside, right? And basically an escrow, it can only be used for this. It can only be used for decommissioning your plant and for dealing with your waste and you can't use it for your operating budget. So you've got to have those things in place and we do. And in Canada, all of the nuclear power plant waste and decommissioning costs are, are pre-costed, money in the bank, financial guarantee in place for the long-term management and disposal of, of all that material. And honestly, I don't know that there are other technologies that truly do that. And it would really be an interesting question you might want to unpack someday. How much is that done in other forms of, of energy and the chemicals and the mining that goes into it? And how well is cradle to grave, A to Z, soup to nuts, costing uh, done of all those things? Well, anyway, in nuclear it is. And so what we have to do is, in order to build new nuclear, is we have to go through that process again and demonstrate to the public and the, the commission, CNSC commission, that we are going to do this as we have safely and in a way that's protective of the environment and future generations. Mm -hmm. So we can do that. We will do that. But it is a challenge. Mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead and ask a question. I got one more I'd give you. Well, it strikes me that to, to deploy SMRs, you know, that if it's a per project approval process, you know, and, and certainly uh, heed to the governing bodies, if that's the way it needs to be, that that will that will draw out a development cycle, um, you know, of a project. And but I also see it as, you know, I'm always as, as an entrepreneur, I'm always thinking about, you know, market entry and barriers to market entry or, you know, more positively um, strategic, you know, opportunities. And so for OPG, you know, going in and trying to develop a project, you bring a significant strategic benefit given your uh, your rap sheet or you know your your experience list. Whereas if I wanted to go and go to the north and say I'm going to pick that person's SMR technology and develop it, you know, if I don't get laughed out the door, I'm lucky. Like <laughs> that 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 to, that to me is a strategic opportunity and benefit to OPG and you know in terms of deploying SMRs beyond you know darlington and and pickering and 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 doing having a, a role in that and maybe that's part of your kind of plan or vision is you you will have a role in developing it elsewhere in ontario or canada or over the is that kind of part of the plan yeah no you're, you're absolutely right there's a sort of a, a price of entry and and we you know being what we hope to be a, we think we are a, a forward-looking um business that that wants to do the good things um, we're open to partnering with others who, who might want to pursue that opportunity and, and find the right business arrangement that enables others to succeed. Um, I, I don't want to speak for Bruce Power or New Brunswick Power, but they're also very capable uh, nuclear operators with lots of experience, also you know, interested to one extent or another in small modular reactors, and, and they are also potential, again, not speaking for them, but they are also potential uh, capable partners to, to work with other businesses. Hmm. Cool. Want to shift gears a little bit, Robin? Um, 
you know, in terms of uh, some of the technologies that we've discussed, obviously, you know, nuclear very well, but I understand, you know, a little bit about biomass uh, as well. And OPG does have a biomass facility that was converted from coal to run on 100% biomass. And I think it's uh, actually North America's largest plant, if I'm not mistaken, coming in at about uh, 205 megawatts. So a bit of a two-part question for you. Um, one question would be, can you describe why biomass is renewable? And, and you know, we're asking this question because biomass is uh, pretty close to CEM's heart. We're starting to get more and more involved in, in these types of projects. And uh, our founder, Martin Lensink, uh, it's a technology that's close to his heart. So we'd love to have you talk a little bit about that piece. And then maybe if you could talk about some of the kind of controversial subjects that come up when we talk about biomass, we think about, you know, sustainable forestation and, and whether that's really happening or not. We think about diesel trucks potentially bringing some of that feedstock, you know, to a facility and the associated emissions there. How is OPG kind of managing that sustainability piece and uh, making sure that it's uh, as emissions free as possible? Yeah, thanks very much. And and it might be a, a bit too much of a compliment to say I know much about biomass, but but I'll I'll do my best. Um, so you know th this this is again I was talking about alternatives and multiple solutions to problems, right? That there there isn't a one size fits all. And I mentioned how there's this natural cycle of plants uh, that exchange carbon with the atmosphere. So biomass fundamentally works on that principle that it's naturally occurring that uh, trees that are growing are sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and trees die, right? And, and when they break down, you know, carbon dioxide gets released. So, so biomass fundamentally works on the same principle as that. That, that, that you know, as simplistically, I'm a, I'm a physicist, not a biologist, but that's <laughs> sort of how I look at it. So, so we've got this Atacocan plant as you said, you know, the, the biggest uh, biomass plant in North America. Um, and we have uh, contracts in place with a, a couple of companies that supply um, a, a, in total about 90,000 tons of wood pellets. Wow. Uh, every year. So about 45,000 each. And, um, and uh, so they, they supply the wood pellets, uh, which get brought to the site um uh sort of on an ongoing basis just like any other fuel supply and then basically that they get burned in the plant much like what i just described with nuclear except that you know there's no neutrons and no radiation but it's kind of like burning coal or gas you know you burn them you generate steam steam drives the steam turbine so uh so so what you're you're doing in essence is you're you're taking this wood which would otherwise degrade anyway and you're doing it in a controlled way that enables you to generate electricity. So does that release carbon dioxide? Absolutely it does. But what we've done is we have gone and had studies done to say, let's compare that to other forms of um, carbon emitting electricity generation. How does this compare? And, and what those sustainability studies showed, and we've done, we've done it a couple different ways because you know people can question, is, is that valid or not? So one of them was done with the Pembina Institute, and you know Pembina has a very good green uh, track record, right? I mean, that's what it does. And, uh, and in essence, they showed that even 
even produce, even if we were burning a lot more of it than we are, it would still be sustainable in terms of the forests and the forestry industry. So we are not deforesting uh, Ontario by doing this, and we wouldn't even if we were using a lot more of it than we are. And the study also showed that com compared to a combined cycle natural gas turbine, this is uh, on average 80%, 80% less carbon producing compared to natural gas. So is it carbon free? No. Is it less? Yes, it's much less. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, in, in terms of, you know, diesel trucks and things like that, well, again, you have to look at the the whole thing, not just pick one specific thing in isolation. And uh, and so when you look at the whole uh, cycle as a whole, which is what we're trying to do with our our uh, um, carbon footprint uh, net zero by 2040, you know, so far the studies have shown this is a cleaner way of producing electricity compared to some other options. And so we think it it works well in our overall fleet of, of uh, energy production in, in the province. And Robin, is there a, a job a piece to biomass that might not exist? And I don't mean obviously in, a, in the construction of a site, you know, every every type of technology has a jobs piece, but in terms of, you know, fuel handling, fuel delivery, um, you know, pulling stuff out of the forest, is there a, a job story that perhaps doesn't exist with other technologies? You know, I don't have a specific answer to that. I, I wish I did. Sorry. But I'm just going to give a, a more generic answer, if you will. Sure. And that is that as a, as a smart buyer, as a company that is trying to look at the big picture, we're very aware of the importance of localization and of jobs and the general economic benefits to the province of what we do as you know we're we're a wholly owned uh, arm of the government right our shareholder is the province of ontario which is to say the people of ontario so we're trying to take into account all sorts of factors when when we talk about our footprint our economic footprint our environmental footprint um our business footprint in the province and so you know, where there are opportunities to help with local employment and maintain, you know, existing plants, you know, that, that that's a good thing. So I, I know it's a bit of a generic answer, but uh, but it, it does factor into the things that we do. And and it, frankly, I think it factors into the discussions that other um, good businesses do as well. They try and take these other things to account. Yeah, and that's that was the nature of my question, I think. Often those of us in the energy space and, and, you know, that's the name of this podcast, but I think <laughs> it's important. It's important to us to think of ourselves as storytellers and, uh, you know, every, every project, every technology has a story. And I, I know for myself, sometimes I kind of narrow in the story uh, too, too narrow. And, and, and I always have to remind myself to, it's more, it's more than just, you know, kilowatt hours and, and, tons of co2 it's it's you know job creation it's resiliency there's all these other pieces to the story right so um as we kind of land land the plane here together uh, robin just want to maybe give you a chance to pivot back to to nuclear like is there as part of telling that story are there any aspects of it 
that we've we've missed. I know I'm way more enlightened as a result uh, on both nuclear and uh, SMR in particular. But is there anything we've missed or anything we haven't kind of touched on that uh, you feel is important for our listeners uh, to hear as we wrap up here? Yeah, well, maybe I can just build on what we were just saying and, and bring that back into the nuclear story. So, so when we're talking about small modular reactors, and you know, I talked about the opportunities in Ontario and can they be deployed in other parts of the country and how that can help fight climate change in other parts of the, the country. There's also the angle that right now, this is a developing technology. Um, in the Western world, there's nobody who's really gone all the way and built one of these newer SMRs. There's lots of experience building older, bigger plants. In, uh, in Russia and in China, they're, you know, they're building out more nuclear and they're trying to sell SMRs to, to other countries. We think that Canada has an opportunity for an export market here as long as we go first. You know, it's, it's one thing that Canadians have sometimes done well and sometimes not so well. Uh, and, uh, and so we're sort of looking at this and going, if we sort of delay and wait and let things happen, um, the SMR technologies will be deployed in the U.S. and in Britain and in other parts of the Western world. Um, and then we'll have an opportunity to buy one of theirs and it'll be manufactured somewhere else and we won't have the IP and we won't have rights to it and that kind of thing. But if we move first, we can get some of the IP. We're not going to get it all. We can get some manufacturing in Canada. We're not going to get it all. Everybody wants localization in their local economy and country. Um, and we can get some exports. And so there's a, a potential export market growth for jobs for Canadians while doing something good to help the environment in other countries. And so what, that's one of the things that OPG is trying to accomplish. And in, in fact, I think that the provinces are trying to accomplish. I think one of the things the federal government has in its eye uh, in terms of what kind of contributions it could make is what's the big uh, potential for exports. And um, th it's a two, two for one, right? So yeah. that's yeah. one of the reasons why we're trying to move quickly. Cool. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I have this vision of of a, a ship leaving, you know, one of our uh, ports and there's these big containers, a big <laughs> Canadian flag on the side and there's SMRs going all over the world. Uh, that's that's the story. Um, awesome. Well, Robin, thank you so much uh, for your time. This has been uh, you're, you're clearly both um, very knowledgeable, but also very passionate about uh, what you're doing with nuclear. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we as we as our listeners listen, that will come through uh, in the dialogue. And so for that, uh, we are grateful. We're we know everybody's busy. So we're we're grateful uh, for your time today. Uh, thank you for joining the podcast. Yeah. And thank you, Robin, for just the uh, the way that you were able to describe the technologies that, you know, you were able to get into the technical depth, but you also were pretty you know, able to simplify things very nicely, I thought, for our listeners. So so thank you for doing that. The way that you articulated that was uh, was great. Today. I, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Those were great questions that uh, really helped to unpack uh, this, this issue. So uh, thank you. Take care. Right on. Right on. Thank you. And, and to our listeners, uh, we were joined today by Robin Manley, the VP of Nuclear Development with Ontario Power Generation. On behalf of my co-host, uh, Lisa Barber, and our man behind the glass, Mr. Mark Charbonneau, 
My name is Matt Lensink. And uh, until we meet again, uh, have fun and stay safe. Take care.